I invite you to open up to Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Please be seated. Good morning. Good to have everybody here this morning. We are taking a a one-week hiatus from the book of Acts. We will come back next week to Acts. We'll begin Acts 27 and pick up where Paul is going to be on his journey. And Paul is going to be uh, traveling en route to his final destination, at least in the book of Acts, Rome. And so we'll be picking that up next week. This week, we're going to find ourselves here in Psalm 1. And... If you remember from last week, as Paul was giving his testimony, his defense, standing before King Agrippa, the one aspect of his message last week that we spoke of was this prescribed path of obedience, which came right on the heels of his conversion. And he's speaking about and telling King Agrippa that I'm only doing what the Lord's called me to do. I'm simply obeying what he's instructed me. To carry out. I believe in many ways Psalm 1 is going to be a good follow-up to some of the things we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, uh, I I'd still believe you're going to be able to uh, pick up. You don't have to have last week's to get this week's. Uh, but in many ways, I think this psalm right here is going to be helpful for every single one of us uh, today. To be able to walk in a path of righteousness. To be able to walk in righteousness as God's called us to walk. And so to that end, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to begin looking at this psalm here this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, you have searched us and you've known us. You know our sitting down. You know our rising up. You understand our thoughts afar off. You comprehend our paths and our lying down. You're acquainted with all of our ways. There's not a word on our tongues. But Lord, you know them all together. Father, there's no place we can go from your spirit. There's no place we can hide from your presence. And Father, it's comforting to know that you are in control of all things. You are the creator and the sustainer over all your creation. And as we look to your word this morning, pray that you would open our eyes to see who you are and what you have to say. I pray that you would teach us what it is and what it is not to walk as a godly man and woman. May your word this morning penetrate to the depths of our souls, revealing your truth and stirring our hearts and minds to walk in the way of the righteous. We're grateful for Jesus this morning, who according to the Bible is the man that you have appointed to judge the world. And this judgment will come according to a righteous standard. Father, this day we ask that you would have your way in us As your word is opened and explained, 
And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin by turning your attention to the New Testament for just a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, to the saints at the church in Corinth. And he says, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him, to the Lord. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, Paul says, we persuade Men. Now Paul is writing 2 Corinthians to the church of God, to these saints in Corinth. And he's writing in large part to combat the skeptics, circulating a word about Paul and his ministry. And Paul spends a great deal of time stating his case to the church, revealing himself as a genuine apostle and submitting his work as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul is a Christian, not by word only, but he brings together his faith and works to point out the significance of authentic Christianity. It's as though Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians, here's what it looks like. And if only we had more followers of Jesus today doing that very same thing with their lives. Not in some boastful fashion, but in same In the same way Paul says, follow me as I follow the Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, as the Lord pours out more grace in his life, he walks in humility. He's submitting himself to the Lord's ways. And Paul made it his aim to please the Lord. And he did so realizing that a pending judgment from the Lord awaited him. See, it was his understanding of the Lord's judgment to come that motivated his present living. The text says, knowing the terror of the Lord to come... He set out to persuade men. How did he persuade men? We covered that last week. He he persuaded men by calling them to repentance, calling them to turn to God, calling them then to do works befitting a repentant life. That's Acts 26, verse 20. As As I read that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 as a preparation for Psalm 1, a couple questions come to the surface about The Lord's judgment. Does the judgment to come stir within you a motivation or passion for living right now? Does the judgment to come hold the same twofold sway in your life as it did the Apostle Paul to walk as Christ himself walked? And also to witness to others that they too might come to know this Jesus. Does the judgment to come compel you to live differently in these days that you've been given, these days ordained by God? Psalm 1 is not only the opening chapter in the book of Psalms, but it sets the tone, I believe, for the remainder of the Psalms. It actually serves as an expanded proverb in many ways. Remember that the Psalms were used as the Jewish hymn book of the day. The Psalter, it was called. They were set to music. They were used for the purpose of worship. They were written by holy men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
Men like Moses, Solomon, Asaph, sons of Korah, and that shepherd boy David. All these men were used by God to write a collection of psalms categorized under the banner of what we know wisdom literature or books of poetry. Okay? To go along with the psalms, we have Proverbs, we have Job, we have Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. Those would make up that genre of wisdom literature in the scriptures. Okay? The books of poetry. The psalms ask questions. The psalms reveal the heart. The psalms engage the mind. And they span the emotional spectrum. Do you know that most of us, actually not most of us, every single one of us, every single one of us here are emotional beings. And you know, on your best days, you might find yourself over here in the, in the happy joy end of the spectrum. And on some other days, you might find yourself over here down in the doldrums, disappointed, bitter, angry. The Psalms span the emotional spectrum. And, and one of the things that's interesting as we read the Psalms, it, 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 it reveals this, this whole idea of happiness, joy, presence of the Lord on one hand, anger, disappointment, wonder, lack of the presence of the Lord on the other hand, being expressed by the psalmist. The psalmist is oftentimes not at a loss to express himself. Have you noticed that when you read the psalms? I mean, when he's taken into captivity, the psalmist does not hesitate to ask, why? Why, Lord? When the wicked are seemingly getting ahead, the psalmist cries out, how long, Lord? How long are you going to allow this to happen? The psalms, therefore, they meet us where we are, don't they? And for many of us, they serve as a regular source of nourishment for the soul. How many of you read the psalms on a pretty regular basis? Anybody here? You open up the Psalms and read them. The Psalms and the Proverbs serve as, I think, for many followers of Jesus, a regular source of our nourishment. The Psalms carry a connection with us, don't they? There's a connection. They, they seem to express our own words. They seem to declare our own thoughts. And they seem to state our own case or cause through the lens of the psalmist. So when you open to Psalm 1, you're confronted with two kinds of people, aren't you? And really, truly, there are two kinds of people. The ungodly and the righteous. The psalm is much more than an information piece on the difference between the two parties. I don't believe Psalm 1 is here for us to simply acknowledge a right path and a wrong path. Like all scripture, I believe this psalm is profitable for us to digest. I believe this psalm equips us with the basic fundamentals for living this life. And church, we need to return to the basic fundamentals for living this life. I think... In large part, we have forgotten the basic fundamentals. We have forgotten some of the basic truths of what the Bible says. 
I believe this psalm compels us to recognize that there is someone orchestrating all things. That there is someone to whom we must give an account. And therein lies the big idea, I believe, of this psalm. The big idea, really, I think, is captured in verse 6. The Lord knows. The Lord knows the way of the righteous in the way of the ungodly. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. Young people, can you just repeat that with me? The Lord knows. Ready? The Lord knows. Come on, young people. I know we got some young people in here. Even if you don't think you're a young person, you can say it with me. Okay? The Lord knows. I want you to remember that. The Lord knows. He knows. He knows the way of the righteous, and he knows the way of the ungodly. So here's the question. If the Lord knows, since the Lord knows, how then shall we live? How shall we live? What should our living look like in light of the fact that the Lord knows the way of the righteous and the ungodly? You know, in light of the fact that this was one of the poetry books. Uh, the Lord directed my attention to a poem. A very familiar poem to many of you. A poem written by Robert Frost. And immediately you probably already know what it is. It's titled The Road Not Taken. And those last few lines, it says, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I... I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. As I open Psalm 1, I'm reminded of the road less traveled by. A different road, perhaps, than Mr. Frost had in mind. In fact, I I was reminded of Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here's what Jesus had to say near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to what? Destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to what? Life. And there are few who find it. Friends, the Lord Jesus describes two paths for traveling during our days here on earth. There are two paths. Path number one, enter by the narrow gate. The way is difficult. This is the way that leads to life. Few find it. There's another way we can enter, and that's through the wide gate. This way is broad and spacious. This way leads to destruction. And many go in by this way. When you read about the heroes of the faith and you hear the stories of those who've been martyred for their faith, you hear of men and women who took the road less traveled. And I believe that if they were here before you, standing up here today, they would proclaim from the depths of their heart that traveling that road has made all the difference in their life. You see, the road less traveled... In Psalm 1, I believe that may refer to verses 1, 2, and 3. 
You see, one, two, and three speak of this righteous man, the blessed man, the righteous man. And verse one speaks of what this righteous man does not do. Okay, so one, two, and three are going to speak of the righteous man. Verse one is going to tell us what this righteous man does not do. We read the text. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man who stands not in the path of sinners. Blessed is the man who sits not in the seat of the scornful. The righteous man doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Walking and living are oftentimes used interchangeably in the scripture. Walking and living. The righteous man doesn't live like the ungodly live. I hope that's an obvious statement, but it needs to be spoken. The righteous man ought not live as the ungodly man lives. He ought not be participating, walking in, living in the counsels of the ungodly man. His days are lived out differently. The righteous man doesn't stand in the paths of sinners either. He's not hanging out with those who regularly, persistently transgress God's laws. He's careful, listen, he's careful not to waste his time in the company of fools, knowing that bad company corrupts what? Character. Not standing in the the path of sinners. He's not hanging out there. But I believe the psalm also says that the righteous man doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. He's alert and he's watchful to surround himself with people that are going to encourage him, people that are going to exhort him in the truth. And he has no desire to settle for company that profanes the name of the Lord and mocks the narrow way of the scriptures. That's the idea of the scornful, one who mocks, one who profanes. Sitting implies that you are dwelling there, you are abiding. That you're perhaps enjoying where you are. You know, when you have conversations with someone, you meet them for a cup of coffee, you typically are seated around the table. You're there for a little while to have conversation. You are enjoying their company. To sit means that you are placing yourself for some length of time in the company of these other folks. And the scripture here says that the righteous man does not sit in the seat of the scornful. The proverb writer talks about pondering the path of your feet, doesn't he? We ought not be taking our feet in places and then sitting in places that are going to be more in line with the ungodly man. Because we've already covered that the righteous man doesn't live like the ungodly man. If he doesn't live that way, why then do we put ourselves in position to sit and dwell and abide 
with the scornful, with those who mock and profane the name of the Lord Jesus. The psalm is painting a picture of what the righteous man does not do. The righteous man must be able to forsake those things that he used to do. He must rid himself of the former ways of living. And with God's help, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, the righteous man is sanctified, that's the Bible word, sanctified. Sanctification is being set apart, right? Set apart as holy. We participate with God in that sanctification process. And with his help, we are enabled to put off those things characterized by the old man way of living. Notice that the psalm begins, blessed is the man. Or some of your translations, happy is the man. Or another translation said, oh, the joys of the man. Blessed is the man who does not do certain things. Now, see, men and women today, they are searching for happiness, are they not? They're searching to fill up what they think is this happiness bucket inside them. And they're looking all different places to try and fill that bucket of happiness. Right? Searching all over the place. And in their search, here's what happens. They oftentimes equate any restrictions, do not do this, for example, they oftentimes equate any restriction, any kind of rule, any kind of regulation, they, they, they treat that as an obstacle in the way of their happiness. And yet the definition according to the word in Psalm 1, the definition of one's true happiness or blessed state is found in part... In not doing certain things set forth by the Lord in his word. Not doing certain things. The righteous man is found righteous not simply by adding things to his life, but also deleting some things. Getting rid of some things. Some of us perhaps have a hard time walking with the Lord, walking as a righteous man or woman because we have yet to rid ourselves of some of the baggage that once identified us as a worldly man, a worldly person, a natural man. In fact, some of us have had a hard time walking as a righteous man because we've not yet been willing to let go of those things. Blessed is the man. You know, I'm grateful to God that the psalmist speaks as well to what the righteous man ought to be doing. He doesn't stop in verse 1. Verse 1 simply says, here's what you shouldn't be doing. A righteous man. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk. Who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. Nor does he sit in the seat of the scornful. But that's the first word of the next verse. But here's what he does. You know, this is so instructive for us. And even as parents, this is instructive. Because parents, how often do we say, don't do that. Don't do that. Oh, don't do that. 
And yet we never tell our children what to do. The psalmist is instructing us about many things here. He's showing us a picture of a righteous man. And by the way, when I use the word man, please understand, I'm talking about men and women, okay? Verse 1 is showing us what this righteous man ought not to be doing. Verse 2 now, but, is now going to turn a corner and is going to instruct us on what he should be doing. Here's what he's to be about. Oh, this is good. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The righteous man and woman is one who delights in the law of the Lord. And you know, I was reminded of of that first chapter in the book of Joshua. Chapter 1, verse 8. Moses has died. Joshua is the new leader. And the Lord is speaking to Joshua and he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Why? That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. Traveling the road less taken. That narrow road as Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7. Traveling the road less taken. Can you say that your delight is in the law of the Lord? Do you delight in his word each day? Do you delight in the thought of hearing from God in his word? In his law, he meditates day and night. Think think about this for just a moment. I got an image, I got a picture I want to give to you. The word meditate. Sometimes we think of meditate and we think of all these crazy images and pictures. That's not what we're talking about. Make that real clear. Instead, I want to give you a different image. I'm going to give you a different picture. I want to give you a picture of a roaring lion. Not the roaring lion that's described in 1 Peter 5, 8. The devil. Push that one to the side for just a moment. But the picture of a lion who has just caught his prey. And that lion that's just caught his prey is lying there right beside his prey, enjoying his meal. And that lion's not going anywhere for any length of time. He's going to stay right there. See, the word meditate has in mind this picture of an animal that catches his prey and then sits chewing on it. I know, sort of a gross picture. He's not going anywhere anytime soon. He's got his meal and he's delighting in his catch. Do you see the picture? That's the idea captured behind the word meditate here. In his law, in his word, we are to meditate. We are to sit and chew on the word. Friends, do we do that? Is that how we treat this word? Or is it simply open up? I'm going to read my proverb for the day. Oh, 
sort of convicting, isn't it? We're to open this word. We're to, Proverbs 15, 15 talks about happy is the man, talking about the, the, the feasting. This word is intended to be an all-day feast. Are we feasting on his word or are we dabbling in it? Do we know this word having delighted in it or are we content just knowing about it? See, there are many of us here, I'm convinced, who can recite certain verses. If I say John 3, 16, what's that say? For God so loved the world, right? How about... Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created. Good. How about Romans 5, 8? Okay, good. How about Romans 3, 23? Should I give some more? See, I think that there are certain passages of Scripture that we've become familiar with. And we can maybe recite them, maybe not. Some of you, perhaps, even as I put out those verses, were unsure. And because you were unsure, you decided not to speak them. And perhaps you felt a little uncomfortable in the chair for just a moment. That's not all bad. Hopefully, that's convicting and helpful for you to meditate upon his word so that you can have his word in you. The Bible says that we're to hide it in our hearts so that we might not, what? Sin against God. It's a good thing to have his word in us. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. The road less traveled consists of men and women who have chosen to leave behind the old way of living and have instead taken up something of much greater value. I'm reminded of that parable that Jesus shares. You know where the guy digs up the treasure in the field? And he's like, oh, this is great. I gotta have it, I gotta have it, I gotta have it. He puts it back in the ground, he goes back, he sells everything he has to get that field so it has that treasure in it. Do we live that way? Do we live our life centered around this great treasure, or the next parable, the pearl of great price. See, this is something that will refine, something that will keep our eyes focused on the path less traveled. Delighting in his word, this will promote contentment as we travel this pilgrim way. Remember, we're pilgrims, we're sojourners here. The righteous man who wholeheartedly delights in God's word, has established and delighted in his relationship with God himself through faith alone in Christ Jesus. I want you to see the connection here between delighting in his word and delighting in God. So I've heard some people say, you know, why is it? And it's a real question. Maybe it's your question. But some people have thought, you know, why is it that I have such a hard time taking that idea of meditation, chewing on the word. Why do I have such a hard time with this? 
I've said yes to Jesus, and yet I, I, I have, I've shown some kind of aversion to taking up the word to hide it in my heart. Why is that? I don't understand that. Psalm 37 verse 4 says to delight yourself also in the Lord. And he shall give you the desires of your heart. Are you reading this word for answers to your questions or to hear from the one who created you and called you unto himself? Are you reading this word out of duty? Whereas, you know, I know I'm supposed to be reading this. Or are you reading it out of delight? What a privilege it is to have the word of God. There's a big difference. Reading it out of duty. Check. Did my reading for the day. Or reading it out of delight. Would you believe what God says in his word? Do you believe what he says here? Look at his promise he has for me. Big difference, church. The righteous man is considered blessed in what he does not do and in what he does. That's verses 1 and 2. The psalmist then paints a helpful picture to describe this righteous man. So verse 3 talks about who he is. Who, who is this righteous man? Gives us an illustration. What's an illustration? Some of you are good illustrators. What's that mean? You draw good pictures. You can draw a picture. The Bible has all kinds of illustrations and pictures. And these pictures are put forth to illustrate, to help us define truths that God wants us to grab a hold of. So in verse 3, chapter 1, God's given to us an illustration of a righteous man. Here's what a righteous man looks like. So we read verse 3. He shall be like a tree. Planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now, this whole idea of a tree planted firmly by the rivers of water, it's a description that's one of health, one that evokes solid foundations, deep roots, right? But he's also likened to a fruitful tree. A tree that brings forth its fruit in its season. The righteous man bears fruit in his life as he journeys down the road less traveled. A fruit-bearing follower of Jesus. I was reminded of a few passages. John 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the what? branches he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit and then he goes on and says for without me you can do what nothing nothing of spiritual significance later in that same chapter of John 15 verse 16 Jesus tells him he says you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear what fruit and that your fruit should remain. Your fruit ought to make a difference. Romans 7, 
Paul is talking in verse 4. He says, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Church, tell me, who was it that was raised from the dead? Jesus. That we should bear fruit to God. We've now been married to Jesus. He's, He's our new Lord. He's our new master in Christ. And we are now to bear fruit to God. The psalmist speaks of a tree that bears fruit in its season. For the follower of Jesus, let me ask a question. What's the season for bearing fruit? Is there ever a season in life where you are exempt from bearing fruit? I see a no. I see a no. Here a no. Yeah, I hope not. I hope we don't say, you know, well, come, come the fall, you know, I'm just, I'm going to take the fall off. It's been, this summer's been kind of tough bearing fruit. I'll pick it back up in the winter. No, but you see, trees have their time, don't they? Trees have their time when they bear fruit. They bear fruit in their season. But as we think about a follower of Jesus, it's sort of like what Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, 2 Timothy. He says to preach the word to be ready when? In season, out of season. What's that mean? Be ready all the time. Bear fruit all the time, follower of Jesus. We don't have downtime. We don't have off time. We are always on duty if we are a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Always. Bear fruit. Our fruit should remain. But we see also in the text that he should be, he's likened to an attractive tree. That, 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 that line that says, whose leaf also shall not wither. Whose leaf also shall not wither. A leaf that turns yellow Or brown and gets kind of wrinkly and crinkly. You ever seen one of those leaves? It shows signs of fading away. But a leaf that does not wither is noticeable to the eye, isn't it? It's green. It's flourishing. It's vibrant. It's healthy looking. And the righteous man, listen, the righteous man has undergone a change on the inside, right? And that change is intended to affect the outward man. How sad of a witness it is when the righteous man's face fails to reflect the glorious transformation of the heart. There ought to be something different. What a tragedy when the righteous man goes undetected in the crowd. The rejoicing of the heart ought to bring a smile to the face. All right, everyone, let's practice. If you consider yourself to be a righteous man or woman this morning, go ahead and practice. Put a smile on your face. Everybody has permission to put a smile on your face. Go ahead. Everybody smile. Good. You can look around, look at other people's smile. It's encouraging. It brightens your day to see someone else smile. That's good. That's good. Excellent. Good. So you know how to do it. That's that's great. Practice that. Exercise it. The outward. And this is not some fake put a smile on your face. No, I'm talking about what's in our heart. There's rejoicing because of who we are and it ought to show on our face. Remember, we are alive. We are people who are alive who once were dead. We've been able to, we've crossed over from death to life because of what Christ did. 
We ought to be the most joyful people on planet Earth. Shouldn't we? We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. And we have his word. His word of instruction that shows us and tells us how we're to live. Being a new man translates into new living, doesn't it? Well, there's also at the end of verse 3, there's this picture. uh, What I just was thinking about, this picture of character and obedience. And they're kind of brought together here. And it says, and whatever he does shall prosper. The psalmist closes verse 3, combining what he does with who he is. It says, whatever he does, he shall prosper. It's a great picture, I believe, of character and integrity Comes, comes to the surface right here. Character and integrity. The righteous man is deemed blessed by God because of what he does not do, because of what he does, and because of who he is. And so when the righteous man brings who he is and connects it to what he does, the result is blessing. I had the chance this past week to have lunch with a college friend of mine. And he happens to be currently coaching a Division I basketball team in the state of Indiana. And he'd always dreamed, we'd have, we had lunch together, and I was just chatting with him, and he said, you know, I'd always dreamed of, of just simply coaching the best players that I could. I never imagined, though, he says, that the result would have landed me at a Division I level. And here's what I told him. I said, you know, when you do, and by the way, this was the theme of our camp this week, so it was fresh in my mind as I was eating lunch with him. I said, well, here's the thing. When you do things God's way, you're going to get God's results. And you need to make sure you give God glory for those results. He's going to get glory with his results as you do things his way, as you walk his path. A man of character and integrity is blessed. And blessing comes, does it not, in many different forms. But it ought not surprise us when the Lord moves his people to shoulder greater levels of responsibility. A faithful man abounds with blessings. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. God's going God's to put you exactly where he needs you to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. The righteous man is blessed as he lives a faithful life. Delighting in his relationship with God through Jesus Christ and delighting in God's word. Meditating upon it. Chewing on it. That he might be careful to walk in his prescribed path. Now we get to verse 4 and we turn a corner, don't we? We turn a corner. The ungodly are not so. So verses 1, 2, and 3, we've talked about the godly or the righteous man. The blessed man. In verses 4 and 5, we're going to talk a little bit here about the ungodly man. And we're going to see, first of all, in that first line of verse 4, this contrasting picture of ungodliness. The ungodly are not so. In other words, the ungodly do not prosper from the Lord. The ungodly are not blessed by the Lord. Verses 4 and 5 represent a different path. Jesus refers to this path as the broad path, a path which many are traveling on, and yet a path that leads to what? 
destruction. The psalmist presents this path with a different illustration. Again, here's another illustration. Okay? What was the illustration given for the righteous man? What was it? Tree. Go ahead and you can say it. It's okay. Tree. And if you get the wrong answer, you know, it's okay too. We're all here together. We love each other, don't we? Huh? Family. It's okay. There's grace here. If you happen to get a wrong answer, it's okay. We'll help you. We'll instruct you. Get you back on the right path. That's what the word does. There's an illustration here about this ungodly man. The illustration is going to paint a picture of who this ungodly man is. And here it says that he is like the what? The chaff. He's like the chaff which the wind drives away. What is chaff? Well, chaff is this dry, protective casing around rice or barley or oats or wheat. And once these dry casings are removed, they're referred to oftentimes as as chaff. Metaphorically speaking, chaff is just something that's worthless. It's worthless. In the Bible, oftentimes, we see that chaff is something that's typically burned. In fact, Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, John the Baptist is speaking, and he's speaking about Jesus. Listen to what he says in verse 12, chapter 3, Matthew. John says, his winnowing fan is in his hand, speaking of Jesus. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now the Bible links chaff with fire, and fire oftentimes in the Bible is linked to what? Hell, judgment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Judgment. Definitely seen in the picture of hell. The psalmist is describing the ungodly man in contrast to the righteous man. And this contrast is not only seen in many of the Psalms, but I believe it's the predominant theme in the book of Proverbs. If you read the entirety of Proverbs, you can't miss the righteous and the ungodly. Right? It's there all the time. The ungodly, Psalm 1 says, are like the chaff which the wind drives away. If the wind can drive this away, what's it say of chaff? Maybe it's good to just jot down a few things that come to mind about chaff. If the wind can just drive it away. It's not stable. Easily moved. And again, compare the pictures. Compare the illustrations. A tree planted by rivers of water and chaff. One's deeply rooted The other's easily moved, easily swayed, tossed to and fro, some of the Bible descriptions, easily deceived. Well, in verse 5, we see his ungodly destination. It says, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The ungodly man is going to literally be be blown away when life is over here on earth. He will not be seen standing with the godly man, nor will he be linked with the godly man in any way. This is important for all of us to get. 
This psalm speaks a lot about who God is. Both are going to be judged. But the ungodly man who chose to enter the wide gate and walk the broad path will experience the reality of where this path leads. It leads to where? Destruction. The psalmist contrasts two roads, two ways of living in this life, which lead ultimately to two different destinations. If you are sowing seeds on the broad path this morning, it's important that you listen. It's important that you know where the broad path leads. I want to make clear where it leads. According to the Bible, it's always only headed for destruction. If you're sowing seeds on the narrow path, know where it leads. It's going to produce life everlasting. Listen, the principle here is one of sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, right? Galatians 5 says this. If you sow to the flesh by walking the broad path, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the Spirit by walking the narrow path, you will reap life. Two roads that lead to two opposing destinations. Now up to this point, the psalmist has described two parties. The righteous man and the ungodly man. But as he concludes the psalm in verse 6, he provides a third party. And this third party, friends, is the key to understanding the entire psalm. The third party is the Lord. The Lord. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Remember those three words we repeated earlier? The Lord knows. The Lord knows. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows those who are his. And he also knows the way of the ungodly. You know, in fact, some of Jesus' parables, he describes the separation that's going to take place. Remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? Remember that? Hmm? Matthew 25, you can, you can look at it later and read about it. But in Matthew 25, verse 46, it ends this way. These, the goats on his left, talks about the sheep and the goats. Remember that? The goats, the ones on his left, will go away into everlasting punishment. Everlasting punishment. But the righteous, the sheep, those on his right, into eternal life. Two different destinations. See, Psalm 1 shows us two kinds of people, but one Lord overall. Two kinds of people, but one Lord overall. Verse 6 brings both parties together for what might be deemed a final inspection. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He also knows the way of the ungodly, that they shall perish. If something is perishing, what's that mean? It's going to die. It's going to be destroyed. You ever seen an apple? And just let an apple sit for a little while, especially after you cut it. What's it do? Shrivels up, doesn't it? Gets brown, gets all ugly and gnarly, and it's like, I'm not eating that. It perishes. It's exactly what we're talking about here. See, the Lord has deemed the righteous judge, and he's coming back again, this time to judge. There's nothing hidden 
from his sight. He sees all things. He knows all things. He knows, in fact, the hearts of all men. All men. Every single one of us. See, the primary emphasis here in Psalm 1 is, I believe, not on the contrast between the righteous and the ungodly. The Lord stands as judge over both parties, and therefore the righteous and the ungodly are accountable to him alone. This psalm is not here to compare ourselves with other men as though we were more righteous than others or in a a better place than the ungodly. The psalm concludes with a resounding awareness that all men are placed under the judgment of a righteous judge. No one gets a free pass. All are going to be held accountable for their living in this life. And only the righteous are going to stand when the Lord is done meeting out judgment. Only the righteous are going to stand. Friends, this is a sobering psalm. It draws a definitive line in the sand on how one is called to live. It's an authoritative psalm. Establishing the Lord as the ultimate Judge who resides over all creation. Without recognizing the Lord as judge, without recognizing the Lord as the governing authority over all men, his creatures, listen, his creatures will find themselves grasping and searching and wandering and being tossed around like the waves of the ocean. They're going to find themselves, in fact, much like the illustration here in the text, like chaff, blown, tossed here and there. Revelation 22, 14 and 15 says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember the tree of life? This is Revelation, but the tree of life, remember what book was that in? Genesis. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. You see, there is a dividing line, is there not? Psalm 15 asks the question, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Verse 2 says, he who walks uprightly, works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. And at the end of the psalm, it says, he who does these things. And a whole list of things that goes on in Psalm 15 talks about the one who will dwell in your holy hill. And then it concludes by saying, he who does these things shall never be moved. Shall never be moved. I'm reminded of the picture, the illustration of the tree planted by rivers of water. Shall not be moved. The one who meditates in his word day and night. The one who delights in this word. Psalm 112, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. By the way, it might be an interesting study, and it would be quite an exhaustive study, but interesting to see what God says about this blessed man. Blessed is the man. The blessing of God upon man. Blessed is the man who does what? Who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2, blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord, who walk it out. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Not just with a fraction of it, but with the whole heart. 
See, the end result of Psalm 1 is a declaration that God is the judge over all men. And the first chapter of the Psalms boldly outlines who the righteous man is and who the ungodly man is. No secrets here. No hidden agendas. There's no guesswork. The road less traveled leads to everlasting life with Jesus in heaven. The road more traveled, or that broad path, as Jesus spoke of, leads to everlasting destruction among Satan and his demons in hell. The text says, the way of the ungodly shall perish. Friends, I I want to offer some hope for you this morning. Some of you may not yet be traveling the road of the righteous man. Some of you still may be Traveling that road of the ungodly man. Perhaps you know family members who are traveling that road. Friends who are traveling that road. Co-workers are traveling that road. I want to give you some hope this morning for those folks. And it's found in one of those familiar verses we, we, we recited earlier. John 3.16. Listen to what this says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son... That whoever, whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, shall not what? Perish. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. See, Psalm 1 is a signpost pointing out the righteous and the ungodly, showing where their respective roads lead. The good news is that if you're hearing this message today, which I hope you are, If you're hearing this message today, there's still hope to turn from the ungodly path to the righteous path. That happens as you repent from your sins, acknowledging that you have sinned against the judge who himself is without sin. You see, he is by nature a holy God and he cannot partner with sin. Repenting from your sin is hating it and forsaking it knowing that it is displeasing to God, you are turning from your sin. God has provided a means already of dealing with that sin problem. In case you're wondering, he's already provided a way to take care of that. Some 2,000 years ago, in fact, God in his sovereignty, he took care of that problem. When Jesus died on the cross and he took your sins upon himself in his flesh, he was deemed the Lamb of God, this man of sorrows, who, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. See, God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Repent, turn to God by faith, trusting in Christ's atoning work For your sins at the cross. That line in the hymn, his dying breath has brought me life. Remember that? It's it's exactly true. It's right on point. His dying breath has brought me life. And then do works, friends. Do works befitting a life of repentance. That's, That's what Paul talked about last week, right? In Acts 26, 20. Repent, turn to God, do works befitting a repentant life. That's the life of a righteous man that Psalm 1 speaks of. Psalm 1 defines the two roads before us. One that leads to destruction, 
and the other that leads to eternal blessing. The key, though, here, here's the key. The key is not simply choosing a road and then traveling that direction. The key is this. Don't miss this, please. The key is understanding the judge to come. The mediator between God and man. This one we know as Jesus. You see, when you have a right relationship with Jesus, you have a right relationship with the judge. Think about the implications. You have a right relationship with Jesus. You have a right relationship with the judge. That's pretty significant. You see, because a right relationship with the judge assures your righteous standing when judgment time comes. And the Bible assures us that a righteous standing with God through this judge, Jesus Christ, secures a reservation with him in heaven. A reservation that cannot be taken away. It doesn't fade away. Second Peter chapter 1 talks about it. It's kept in heaven for us. Psalm 32 says, blessed is he whose transgression is what? Forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Friends, do you know who it is that covers your sin? Do you know the means by which your sin is covered? It's Jesus Christ and the means is the blood. The blood of Jesus. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. We have a merciful. A merciful. Lord. Friends, this morning from Psalm 1, I want to call you to go down that road less traveled. The way of the righteous. And when you do, I believe that you too will declare that it has made all the difference. It's made all the difference. John 3, just two verses after John 3, 16, you get to John 3, 18. I'd like to read 3.18 and 5.24 of John's gospel. Jesus says, he who believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Most assuredly, Jesus says in chapter 5.24, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Knowing Jesus, the righteous judge, makes all the difference, friend. Knowing Jesus, the righteous judge, makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for granting us clarity from your word on who this righteous man is, on what this righteous man does, and what this righteous man does not do. We thank you, Lord, for giving us clarity on the ungodly man, giving us a picture, a picture of the chaff, easily blown and tossed by the wind. And Father, we thank you for the description of where both of these paths lead but father most of all we thank you for the third party in this psalm the lord jesus christ 
Father, you have granted all authority to your son to mete out judgment in a day that's coming. You have appointed your son to be the judge. And the standard by which he will judge is righteousness. And Father, this psalm speaks of what a righteous man looks like. Father, I pray that we would take heed to these words. Understanding that a righteous man... A righteous man is going to be with you. A righteous man will get to see Jesus. A righteous man will get to be with Jesus in heaven. A righteous man is also going to be intent on taking every opportunity of each day he's given here on earth to walk the path less traveled. And Father, if there are some here this morning who are walking that broad path, I pray that their eyes would be open. Their ears would be open. Their hearts would be open. Be able to know and understand where this broad path leads. It leads to destruction. I pray they would come to understand that they will perish. But Father, I pray that they also hear that there's hope. That if they believe in the Son, if they look to the Son, they shall not perish but they shall have everlasting life. And Father, I pray that as we come to understand this psalm, we would come to understand our responsibility as a righteous man. That Father, just as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing that judgment of the Lord is yet to come, we persuade men. May we, as a body of believers, as followers of Jesus, open our mouths and live lives that would persuade others down this road less traveled. As we've seen in the psalm, these two illustrations, I pray that our lives would be an illustration of the righteous man. Wherever we go, we would be an illustration to those watching of how a righteous person lives. We would be an illustration of what a righteous person chooses not to do. And Father, I pray through all of this that you would get great glory as we do things your way and not our way. May our will conform to your will. We pray your will be done in our lives. Father, we look forward to what you'll do in and through us as we surrender and submit our lives to you from now till we're done. We rejoice in your word and we give you thanks for Jesus our righteous judge. It's in his name we pray. Amen.